Every minute, every moment counts. Hello, I'm Julie Hyde, and I understand what it takes to make these moments count for leadership, business, and your life. This podcast will deliver insights and game-changing leadership moments that will allow you to level up and shine a light for those around you. Let's get into today's episode. I'm here with the incredible Cara Matthews, who is an absolute powerhouse. She has over two decades experience successfully leading change and transformation with some of the biggest brands, including Alabache, and was the retail director for Freedom Furniture. Karen was awarded New South Wales Telstra Businesswoman of the Year amongst many of the accolades that she's received in acknowledgement of her leadership and success. Karen now leads her own consultancy and works with ambitious businesses who understand that in order to grow and remain relevant, they must change and let go of outdated models and thought processes that hold them back. She takes a no BS approach to transformation and gets to the head, the heart and the heartbeat of business. And I cannot tell you how much I love that. And she's recently released her book, Demystifying the Road to Change, and we're going to chat more about that today. So welcome, Karen. Oh, yay. I'm so happy to be here. Let's start by understanding a bit more about you, like the woman behind all of this amazing success. And perhaps where did your passion for business come from? Was there something way back when when you had a dream or what was that for you? I was the stereotypical first child, one of three. I grew up in a in a business family, so you know my my dad was always in the corporate world. But I can't, I don't think I actually had a dream. You know, in those days, you went to uni. You know, I did a bachelor of commerce at the Uni of New South Wales, and I majored in marketing. And at that point, that whole course was orientated towards um, FMCG, so companies like Unilever and Colgate and you know Kellogg's. Uh, I had absolutely no interest in that sort of world you know I, that, that didn't inspire me whatsoever and when it came to kind of the time where different companies come onto campus and they do the campus interviews I went for every other interview other than FMCG but there weren't many there were two that I remember uh, actually there were three there was IBM which didn't push my buttons at all I'm, I'm far from being a, a, an IT techie computer person ASIO which I absolutely love the idea of ASIO, and Maya Grace Brothers Retail. So, of course, I went to the ASIO um, interview and they said, no, 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 you're too small. In those days, you had to be five foot eight at least to join ASIO and you had to have time in uniform. I didn't want to do that either. I want to go straight to detective status. So that left Maya Grace Brothers and I've never looked back. I absolutely love retail and I think business, yes, but retail brands, product, people is first. So I think I was more inspired by that angle than business. As my career's gone on, I've learnt to marry business with emotional brand-driven retail or, or product businesses. So I've never gone down the blue chip, pure corporate pathway. It's always been a bit left of centre. And so, yeah, I, I've never looked back. And I think, but, you know, being part of a business family as well, I think, you know, I was always encouraged and supported and, you know, always have a point of view. And, uh, you know, for, I'm very, very grateful for my, to my parents for being such amazing, quite modern, quite contemporary role models in that area. So... I guess that's that's where the passion came. And then once I started, I just loved 
combining all those things really you know it was combining a point of view with a love of people with a love of brands uh you know going into the, the into the department store world with a with a degree in marketing it was a chance to kind of introduce the pragmatic side of marketing you know when you go to uni you learn all the theory and you learn all the the, the, the buzzwords and you know you come out very pure going into a department store environment you know they're not pure marketers and certainly back in those days marketing was just starting to get to be a bit of a word and so I had the opportunity to go in there into the department store group with a practical perspective on marketing and that's probably where my whole no bs thing really started because if I'd gone in there with all the jargon and the textbook stuff from uni I would have lasted five minutes most hardcore retailers would have would have chewed me up and spat me out in no time and so I really needed to get some credibility in this sort of new world of marketing. And the way to do that was to kind of educate and inspire people on what marketing means rather than just the buzzwords behind it. And the no BS approach was born, I guess, back then, which was a very long time ago. <laughs> I love that. And I really, really love what you said in terms of like marrying the business with the emotional brand. That makes so much sense to me because we have – in common, so when I started my corporate career, I started in retail and stayed there for pretty much my whole time as well. And one of the things I learned is that, yes, the brand may have attracted people into the store or into the branch, but it's the person, like the people that they buy, they buy you and your ability to communicate. So therefore, being connected to the brand is really, really important. So I love what you said there. So if we tap into that a little bit in terms of, as I say, like I, I did spend 21 years in corporate and in an organisation that changed pretty much every two years. So as soon as a new leader came in from general management to CEO, whatever level it was, change happened. And I saw it go incredibly well and then... I saw it go really badly, like really poorly in that people weren't connected and the implementation was just really, really poor. To try and simplify it, like what do you see are the keys to success? It is actually quite simple. I'm one of those people that sat in, you know, you go to a hotel with the executive team and you sit there for two days and there's a whole bunch of presentations you know, somebody stands up and talks about the results for the year and then each divisional head gets up and talks about the highlights for the year. Everybody lists the issues. Then there's um, usually some sort of bloodletting of some description. Then we all go out for a team dinner and bond and, you know, drink lots of, lots of great wine and eat expensive food and then come back in the room the next day to talk about, you know, how we're going to change things. Everyone goes home with some hope, I guess, and feeling a little bit motivated that maybe this is the time. And the business is feeling a little bit more cohesive for a minute. Uh, then there's a curveball or a drama or, you know, some sort of hiccup. And immediately everybody morphs back to business as usual. And in fact, what's happened is nothing has happened. My book and my process is three parts. It's, firstly, it's a reality check. So it's looking at the business the way it is right now. No blame, no solutions, just the facts. You know, what does it look like from a financial point of view? What does it look like from a brand point of view? You know, what is the brand? What does it stand for? What does it look like from a cultural point of view? You know, you know what is our kind of the way we do things around here? 
the reality, not what the founder or the CEO wants it to be. What actually is it? How does the customer see the business? You know, where is it positioned on a positioning map? Again, not how the executive team would like it to be, how it actually is. So part one is that reality check. Most businesses do an okay job of that. I think where they fall down on that stage is probably projecting how they'd like it to be rather than how it is. And the other thing is they launch into solution and blame mode at that point. I've seen that a lot. So part one is that reality check. That's super, super important. Part two is then deciding and acting. So that's the stage where a business will say, you know what, we're going to make some changes. And they prioritise what the biggest issues are in the business. And this is where most businesses start to not do a great job. A business, in my view, cannot tackle properly more than three or four issues at a time. So it's prioritising those three or four most important issues, setting up the actions that you're going to take to address those issues and then developing an implementation plan to actually make that happen, right? And this is where a lot of businesses, we're in that hotel room, we never get to the implementation plan in that hotel room. Usually the CEO or the GM or whoever or the facilitator and the, and the CEO are going to go back and develop that behind the scenes and you never hear anything again. That implementation plan is critical and that, is, that includes things like, you know, the reports, who's going to do what, the timing. And remember, it's just three or four issues. It's not like a long shopping list of, of issues. The third stage in my book is the one that I haven't seen anyone do particularly well. And this is the piece I'm absolutely obsessed with. It's making it stick. So it's changing your business process so your planning is not a set and forget twice a year event. You know, it's dynamic. It's continual. You know, it's it's making sure that business is set up for when those curveballs come in, which we all know will. And that third stage is setting your business up so it, it is responsive. You know, it's not like a three-day meeting every time there's a problem. Firstly, it doesn't take you three months to realise there's a problem or there's a change, and then you have to have a three-day meeting to actually talk about it, and so the process continues. And you never really address the issue, and if you do, you've probably missed the boat and the next one's about to come up. So stage three of my book is about what business processes do you need to build into your organisation to keep planning and change management dynamic and, and make sure that, you know, you can, you can bend and twist and turn quickly without losing focus and without losing sight of the vision and the purpose. And for me, that's the key to getting this planning process, you know, up to date and accurate and allowing businesses to keep moving forward, deal with change, but not like two steps forward, two steps back, and then lose sight of their vision because they're worried about making their budgets for the year. And I know from my experience of Elabasha, when we went through this process, the communication and the ongoing kind of Pied Piper approach to leadership was critical. Without that, it would have fallen over. I've no doubt it would not have kept going because it's hard. It's hard and it's scary and, it, you know, half the people hate you. You've just got to stay so focused on the do and, and the result but be open enough to find different pathways to lead people to that end result. 
We are all leaders, but you cannot be a leader of others unless you are a leader of self first. Over the past two decades, I've empowered hundreds of leaders to deliver positive impact to the business they are representing, resulting in extraordinary sales growth and high staff retention rates. I'm often asked the question, how can I work with you, Julie? Here's how. I present one-hour keynotes to corporations, providing practical tools and strategies for leaders and their teams to take control of busy, to be intentional with their actions and achieve the high performance results that they're looking for. I also work one-on-one with a select few ambitious and courageous leaders who understand the key to creating their success starts with them. So if you'd like to connect, you can find me at juliehyde.com.au. You touched on Ella Bachet there, which I think is, it's like an amazing story of transformation. I'd love to just dig into that a little bit deeper because I know that you played a critical role in leading the business leaders through that path. So whether that is to be on board with the transformation or whether to not be, and that's okay. I think I've heard you use words like respectfully sort of help them make their own choices because there's so much fear around change, which I think is what makes people so resistant to it because they focus on what they're losing because they can't necessarily connect to what they're gaining yet, which, as you said, is the critical role that the leader plays in that change management, which you clearly did an exceptional job of. So could you tap into that a little bit more for us? When I started at Elabache, it was an incredible brand. It was a family business. I liken it to driving down the main street of Universal Studios, you know, in those trolley buses. And you're driving down that main street and there's all these amazing looking sort of facades. You open the door of those facades, there's nothing there. That was Bache. Incredible brand, punching above its weight. A brand that was built on love, so much brand love and, and respect for product and family and for Ella herself. But there was no business systems, no processes. There was not a piece of paper in the organisation anywhere that bound the salon network, of which there were 300, to head office. Absolutely no rules. It was a complete free-for-all. It was totally built on love. So you can imagine a heart and then there was just nothing around it. And when I got there, there were many instances of salons certainly not being respectful through no fault of their own on the Elabache brand. You know, people in one place would do a leg wax one way, another place would do a leg wax another way. We're having eyelash tinting, you know, happening over here. We have eyelash burning over here. We had, you know, people with a sign on the door and in some cases didn't even have Elabache product in the salon. I mean, it was out of control. And so my task when I got there, self-proclaimed task, was to say, we've got a great brand here. How do we actually harness this beautiful brand but put some built some systems around it so it's actually going to be here long term? And that's where my brand first at all costs mantra, I guess, started because for me the heart and soul of that brand was its power. I needed to really understand the brand and so I really spent a lot of time understanding the brand because I was a new girl. You know, I wasn't from the industry. I was young in those days and, you know, I had a big job and people were very sceptical and nervous and fearful, like who the hell does she think she is? So, you know, right from the get-go, I just started talking to people 
you know, I talk to salon owners, I talk to suppliers, I talk to staff. And when I started to embark down, okay, so the best way for us to actually marry head and heart was to actually build a business system around the love. And that business system took two forms. Uh, it took the form of a pure franchise model as well as a distribution model. But what I did is make sure that the clause around the brand within both agreements was the same. So for me, it was all about protecting the brand. So if you're going to have a leg wax in Penrith, it's going to be the same as the leg wax you have in Mossman. And so there was a huge education component around being an Alabashe salon. And the salons had a choice of which agreement they had to sign. Now, this was huge. This is where fear kicked in because there were no agreements. They hadn't signed anything. And many of them have been operating for 30 years. And so my role as the leader is I needed to show people what was in it for them. And I needed to show people why I needed to do this for the overall brand, why I would love them to come along. But if they don't want to, I also respect that. I met with salon owners, I met with husbands and wives, I met with the ACCC, I met with lawyers, you name it, I met one-on-one, one-on-hundred, on one-on-twenty, one on states, country, like I was a talk fest. I did nothing but talk for years. As it turns out, you know, there were a handful of salons that it certainly wasn't right for them for lots of reasons and they just wanted to run their own business their own little way. And so there is one story that I'm very, very proud of is there was one salon owner and it wasn't right for her and it was very emotional for her. You know, she was very stressed about what to do. And I sat with her one day and I just said, you know what, um, this is not right for you. Why don't we now spend some time talking? And I explained why and we agreed. And uh, why don't we spend some time finding another brand for you to put in your salon? So I actually helped her go through looked at the different websites of different brands, find the one that she could align herself with most. I helped her ring up, make the appointment. I talked to her about the questions to ask when she went for that first appointment. And, you know, the rest is history. It was a great outcome for her. I felt like I'd managed the right change for Ella Bache for the company, but I'd also treated her with respect and helped her actually navigate the change in the best way for her without losing sight of what I needed to do. And so that balance of kind of head, heart, respect, without losing sight of what you have to do. And there are all sorts of different pathway stories for different people, depending on where they're at. But that's why I probably won the award for that leading that change, because it was a hugely emotional and required a huge amount of emotional intelligence, I think, to actually navigate that change and manage the, the board and, you know, the, the financial people as well. So it was it certainly wasn't an easy gig definitely not massive massive role but I really love that story I'm so grateful to you for sharing that because even though the business and the sometimes people are not on the same path we can certainly navigate that with respect and like you say just understanding that it's okay that it's not going to work out but let's let's work out a really good solution so throughout your time and you know in, in leading transformations I have no doubt that you have been through many challenges and have had your leadership and your values challenged I find you to be just so incredibly authentic and just incredibly humble in terms of who you are it's very easy to connect with you and I just wonder like how do you stay true and anchored to your 
you know, who you are as a leader and, and your values when things are probably getting quite heated? Well, Steve Jobs did an amazing speech at one of the Stanford graduations, and I can't remember the year right now, and he talks about his brick in the head. And his brick in the head was being fired from his own company. And my brick in the head was actually freedom. I went into freedom on the back of El and I'd had a lot of success at El and not just success in numbers, it was a success in approach and leadership style and all that stuff that we've just talked about. So I went marching into El on the back of an amazing brief. You know, it was a great brief. It was like, you know, fix up our retail area and then help the whole business become more customer orientated and, and brand focused. Incredible brief. I was super excited. You know, when I got there and I was just in my retail silo, it was great. You know, I really was able to make a big difference um, and, and make some, you know, pretty significant changes and get some pretty significant results very quickly. When I started to actually branch out and start to try and infiltrate, if you like, some of the other parts of the business, that's when it started to be very confronting. I wasn't that sort of corporate style. I am very authentic and I seem to have an incredible ability within that organisation of offending most people. (laughs) It wasn't the right fit for me. You know, I, I didn't function you know, I, I say it like I see it. I call it like I see it. I speak from the heart. I'm not particularly political and that's not always acceptable in some organisations. My no BS, authentic, emotion-driven, brand-driven style actually wasn't right for the freedom. And I remember being so challenged. It's like, oh, how is this happening? Like, you know, this is the perfect job for me. This is the perfect brand. I know what to do. I know how to do it. Look what I did at Bache and why can't I break through here? And, um, you know, it was very, very challenging because I was like, I, I went from a high to feeling like I was some sort of failure because I couldn't make it work. I was there for like three and a half years and, you know, two years of that was great. But once I got sort of past that just retail aspect I started to really challenge myself and 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 you know the best thing for me was to leave because I really couldn't lead that business in a way that was true to me and I really tried you know I'm no shrinking violet and I I gave it a red hot crack and um, on lots of occasions and it just it just didn't work you know It, it wasn't the organization for me And in hindsight, I think, you know, I should have asked a lot more questions around culture at the interview stage. You know, I was attracted by the bright, shiny lights. I was attracted by the role and and what it's going to lead to and the future, but I didn't ask enough questions around culture and how do we actually do things around here? What does a meeting look like around here? You know, I should have talked to some of the other executives, some of the other people who, I was, who were going to be my peers and actually really asked them, you know, how does it roll here? And if I'd done that, I would have maybe got some of those warning signs. So, yeah, it was a massive learning. That was my brick in the head, but the best thing that happened to me because that's how you learn. That's how you learn from experiences, you know. Yeah, totally. And I love that you made that courageous decision to step away but also got that learning from it that you're now sharing. So with people, because the culture component is so important, probably even more so now because you know, there's such an emphasis on it, it really is the thing that can make or break the success. 
Oh, it's such a powerful note to end our chat on. I have just loved chatting with you and what you've shared so much with us today. And with the show notes, I'm going to share how people can get in contact with you and how they can buy your book, which is just fantastic. And like you say, there's lots of templates and it's a real how-to approach that um, business transformation to create the sustainable growth. So I'm so grateful for your time and I'm so so grateful that our paths have crossed. Oh, and- me too, Julie. I cannot I cannot wait to keep working with you. Thank you so much for having me on your amazing podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Lots of love. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And I trust that you enjoyed leaning into one of the precious moments shared. I invite you to leave your thoughts as a review in support of this show. You can also share with your network and even rate and review it. I would appreciate that feedback and connection. I'd love to connect on LinkedIn or Instagram via my handle, Julie Hyde Leads. Until next time, live and lead intentionally and make it count. Make it count.